Hi everyone and welcome back to The Advice Show. I'm Zach, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and today we're talking about the platform space, the latest developments and the direction of travel for Parmenian. I'm joined by fellow reporter Alyssa Hagopian and Chief Commercial Officer at Parmenian, Mike Morrow. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Nice to see you. Thank you. So I think we just wanted to get jump right in and get started. Some of the biggest news in the platform space recently has been about IntelliFlow's partnership with uh, tech firm SS&C. To launch a fully integrated back office and investment platform system, is this something that Parmenian will be looking into, and is this something that advisors want? It, that's a good way of asking the question, really. Is it what advisors want? I mean, my my experience of advisors has always been that they don't particularly like cul-de-sacs; they don't want to be gated or limited. So I think that I think the partnership with Hubwise is intriguing and interesting to me. I can, I can see what's in it for IntelliFlow. I can't, I'm probably less clear what's in it for Hubwise at this point in time because IntelliFlow is ultimately the dominant CRM in the marketplace. I mean, m- the majority of my key partner customers are IntelliFlow users as well. Um, we have quote and apply capability, so they're able to set up a client from scratch without ever leaving Parmenian today. So I think what they're trying to do with Hubwise is just take that to that next level, make it even more integrated so that it does the quote and apply, brings back the content, helps you to stop ever having to leave I.O. I, I, and I suppose the reason for that is, although it's dominant, it doesn't have massive advocacy. It's it's not the most loved tool that advisors use. That's the feedback I get regularly. They kind of feel like they need to keep using it because it's very hard to leave it. Um, and therefore, I can see why it's in I.O.'s interest to try and create more way, more hooks. But from a Hubwise perspective, I'm, I'm less clear because... I think there are other users of Hubwise where you've now surfaced the price in a way that's very visible and very transparent. And for other people that are using Hubwise that are pushing that product into the market at a different price point, a more expensive price point, I think just thinking through the consumer duty lens, I think that's going to make that quite challenging now to show what's different. What's the added value of proposition B versus proposition A? You know, why, why can't I buy it at that price? Um, so there's lots of questions I've got about it, but I'm definitely quite intrigued by the hookup. I think that it's a good point that you brought up about the price as well. So if they have a pricing scheme between 15 bips going down to 5 bips, yeah. how, what's stopping other platforms from matching that? And do you think that any other platforms can compete with that? Well, for, I mean, first things first. I mean, Hubwise has only relatively recently been bought by SS&C. So up until that point, it... I don't think it would be unfair to say that it it was definitely in its growth phase. It was in its startup phase. So yes, it's now owned by a much bigger parent who can probably afford to take a really long-term view about it. It's on its own technology. It's on proprietary tech. So that's a good thing. So it's got it's got its fixed costs probably under control now, um, but it's not at scale. So I don't think you could describe it as a long-term sustainable platform in its own right. So I, I wouldn't read too much into its price points. I, I do get slightly twitchy when I see people sort of talking down the pricing in the market all of the time to say that platforms are just a utility and they should be available at, you know, five, six, seven, eight basis points. That's just not my experience of platforms. Um, they have to be sustainable. They have to be profitable. Advisors want them to continue to develop. There constantly is a need to do regulatory stuff. Um, you're constantly having to make change and maintain and to do that, you have to be you have to be profitable, but you have to be long term profitable and sustainable. 
And the race to the bottom on pricing, I don't think helps that. Um, but to your point, Alicia, I think I'm more intrigued by the fact that that hubwise proposition is available in multiple places in the market at very, very different price points. That That's the bit that's a bit more irreconcilable to me. Hmm. And um, do you think that, as you said there, you said uh, the race to the bottom pricing isn't that helpful. Yeah. Do you share the sense of inevitability that some um, platforms have in terms of race to the bottom? Do you think that on pricing that is, do you think that will change or do you think that will keep going? I think I think it'll find its level as it always does. But I think unfortunately along the way, what we will, what we are bound to see is that some of those new starts or some of those, um, you know, disruptor models that come into the marketplace, they just, they won't get the scale. They'll end up being bought or they'll end up being swallowed into other groups. And then I think the difficulty that people are going to have with that is they've committed to something yeah. in a kind of cul-de-sac way that I was describing earlier that they're no longer in control of. And it, it won't it won't turn out how they thought it was going to turn out. I, I keep hearing people articulating this piece about I want to have control. I, that's why I want to partner with a platform or I want to bring a platform into my own tech stack. I want to have control of the customer experience. But you just have to be really careful about what is the control you want do you, do you actually think you're going to be in control of all of the IT development on that platform, all of the cybersecurity, all of the kind of layers of bluntly quite dull stuff that platforms mm. have to do to stay safe and stay solvent and stay in the market? Um, we'll come on to the outsourcing uh, yeah. sort of ownership of, of tech um, a bit later on, I think. Um, but just uh, returning to IntelliFlow and this tight with SSNC, um, from an advisor perspective, then, as we mentioned, you know, a lot of advisors using Teleflow already. Yeah. What questions should they be asking that's tailored specific to them uh, with this new service? I mean, for me, there's there's one big question which I think you've got to ask, which is that Inteliflow is an unregulated business. It's not a regulated entity in its own right. It does not carry permissions, and and yet it's um, my understanding is it's going to actually participate in a value share agreement between these two parties. If, the, if that is the case, I think we'd need to just have a really better understanding than we do now of exactly where the lines are. What are they doing for that share of platform income, which is paid for by the client? And is it a regulated activity or not? Because obviously an unregulated business can't perform a regulated activity. So I think we'll just have to understand the the intersection points better. And, and I'm, I'm definitely not trying to be you know, unkind to it or detrimental to it. I'm intrigued by it. I'm interested in it. And I think it could be a sign of what um, some of the future integrations look like in this space. And obviously avoiding double keying is brilliant for advisors if you can get some efficiency gains through it. But having been in platforms for a long time, I'm also probably a bit super cautious about regulatory permissions, regulated activities, and making sure everybody's clear who's doing what in that in that regulatory landscape. I think the last thing that I'd want to ask on that, just going back to the beginning, is you mentioned a very good point about advisors don't like to feel like they're in a cul-de-sac. Yeah. They don't want to feel trapped in a way. Yeah. But at the same time, a lot of what we hear from advisors, and I'm sure you feel the same, Zach, is I don't want to keep paying for a million different types of technology. I yeah. don't want to have to learn a million different types of yeah. technology. I want simplicity. I want yeah. one fee. Yeah. So there is that element too. And... I guess that's why I'm wondering if Parmenian would be interested in pursuing these kind of integrations. And mm. yeah, 
I think that's a great question. I think you will, I mean, for a start, um, it would be fair to say IntelliFlow Hubwise is not the first uh, sort of partnership in this space we've seen. So obviously Transact bought the Time for Advice Curo business as well. And I, I think that there's definitely some parallels. There's definitely some um, some room for some beneficial partnerships in that space. Um, there's so much data that could flow between those two uh, sort of critical business tools inside an IFA practice that you can either optimize that through integration or you actually just build even deeper partnerships so that you're not having to rekey. It's just it's you know it's just moving readily between the two uh, the two data sources. So you're going to see more of it. I guess on on that note, what other kind of advisor tech integration do you think? will be an industry standard in the next few years? Uh, well, if you think about, if you were building, if you and I were setting up a business tomorrow, you know, what would you need? You would need to have a decent way of recording your your prospect information and your client information, your CRM. You definitely need to have a high quality attitude to risk tool that helps you really benchmark what it is that people want to go into and their, their capacity for laws. Cashflow modeling has just become hygiene in this space. Any good planning business is going to say that, and I, Zach, you've talked about it a lot and interviewed people about about good cash flow tools. Um, you then got to fix your your partners, and you know platforms, investment platforms, fulfil a really important role because they they allow you to operate across a waterfront of investment solutions. But you're going to have your preferred centralised investment proposition and maybe centralised retirement proposition as well. So. You know, I've just reeled off four or five things there that potentially you might have to key into individually. So mm-hmm. it's bringing all of those together into a single keying um, way of thinking, which is where the efficiencies are going to be found for advisor firms. Um, I just wanted to move on for a second into um, platform uh, margins on cash. Mm-hmm. Um, the FCA has uh, announced that they'll be looking into this. Yeah. Um, I just wondered what your thoughts were on it and what you think they'll be looking for. I think what they want to understand is if firms are um, profiteering, ultimately. If, if firms are showing themselves to be taking very high levels of profitability out of the margin on platform cash, not disclosing it well, and, and not sharing it with customers, um, I think that's going to be a difficult space to inhabit. But I also think there's an important bit of context here as well, which is that platforms are not banks. And I, and I say that from the experience of, I was just looking at some stuff last night, actually, to do with um, a family member who I end up as the token member of the family who virtually understands financial services, you know, help me to understand this stuff to do my tax return. And I looked at two major high street banks where uh, a member of my family is holding, you know, plus five figure sums in both these two bank accounts. And on one they receive zero rate of return because it's unplanned cash in a current account. And on the other account, which, you know, just happens to be a, you know, well-known Spanish-based bank, they get 2%, but they only get 2% on the first 20,000 pounds. And then after that, they get zero. So I I think you have to differentiate between planned and unplanned cash. Mm. For unplanned cash on Parmenian, for example, we pay... Uh, 1% up to £10,000, and then we pay uh, 2.8% on anything over £10,000. But that is unplanned cash. If people want to have planned cash with us, we have a completely separate sweep solution called Sterling, 
And that PIM sterling solution pays a much higher rate of interest. You know, that currently throws off a yield of about 4.4%. So you just, you need to definitely understand what the options are for the client. We mandate that people hold 2% in cash on our, in our portfolios, but that is lubrication. That, that is what pays advisor fees and charges, fund manager fees. It's, it's there as a, as a lubricant. It's coming in and it's going out all the time. So it's very difficult to justify paying out all of the interest that you are earning from the banks on that because you actually have got to spend some money and invest in some infrastructure to spread it across three banks, for example, in, in our example, and make sure that you're optimizing rates. So I think what the FCI will be interested in, if, the, if they see firms where the majority of that firm's profitability is emerging from marginal cash, I think they'll be deeply uncomfortable. And they should be. But I would also, just for context, say this was not an issue a year ago. A year ago, no one was focused on this because the yields that were coming out of cash were, you know, derisory. And by the time we get through into January, February, March of next year, I think we'd all like to believe we're going to see a bit of normalization of interest rates anyway. So this might be a moment in time issue. That's a very interesting point, mm. actually, because, yeah. Well, maybe a year ago this was starting to be a problem, but yeah. two years ago it wasn't it wasn't yeah. a topic on people's mind. Yeah. So I think the first question to ask actually, just so that we're clear for the listeners of the podcast, is um what interest rate does Parmenian offer as a standard on its cash? One percent up to ten thousand pounds and then two point eight percent on anything over ten thousand pounds. Okay. So I guess the discussion is there are several platforms where they have made immense margins on cash this year. Yeah. And as you said, it could be a moment in time. It could yeah. just be that this is one year where that's happened. Yeah. But the question is, when and where should platforms have taken that moment to say, yeah. you need to move your cash somewhere else. Your yeah. cash shouldn't be held with, held with us. We're not a bank. Yeah. Where is that boundary? And should yeah. that have already happened? Or is that something that should take another few months to happen and then interest rates will change? No, I think that's fair. The way you've expressed it is fair. I mean... I think relative to other platforms, we don't have a lot of cash holdings typically. So if we talk about Parmenian being a 10 billion pound asset group, which it is, we've got about 300 million sat in cash. So we've got about 3% sat in cash, but we have to have 2% in cash just sitting inside the models at all times, just to cope with those fees and charges that are being paid. Because bear in mind, that's one of the reasons why IFA's clients are held on platforms because it's a... It's a very efficient way of facilitating advisor charging. So that 2% is probably always going to be there. I think we're probably unusual. If I look at other platforms, you're probably seeing more like 5, 6, 7, 8% held in cash. So those arguments about not passing on or not disclosing well your margin on client interest, they become more difficult the more cash you're holding on the platform. Sort of wrapping up on cash. Um the you mentioned earlier about profitability and that mm. being a concern of the FCA potentially. Mm. Where do you see that um, in terms of consumer duties focus on fair value as well? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think that the FCA also has overarching responsibilities for the health of the sector. You know, and it's it's not good for the sector to be unprofitable. The corollary of that is it's also not good for the sector to have super normal profits. You know, if, if it's viewed to be profiteering in particular spaces, that's bad for consumer trust. That puts people off investing. So that's a bad thing. 
the right answer is somewhere in between. You've got to find a way of creating long-term sustainable profit in businesses that can then invest in themselves mm. and do better for their clients. But there's still room for profit. I mean, you've got you've got to be uh, profitable to be able to reinvest and keep to develop your platform. Otherwise, you very quickly go you know out of style and you don't keep up with the requirements from clients and their advisors. Of course. And digging further into consumer duty, um, we wanted to discuss the sort of um, delegation of responsibility yeah. in consumer duty. Yeah. Um, so one of these one of these areas is, of course. Um, uh, the ownership of technology that you're using as a platform, whether yeah. you're using your own or you're outsourcing, mm -hmm. um, and consumer duties focus on uh, where the responsibility lies. Do you see that as p potentially presenting an issue for some platforms? I, I think it presents an issue not just for the platform. I think it presents issues for platforms and the advisors that are choosing to use it on a material outsource basis. Um, so I think for some of the sort of more vertical integrated models that we're seeing at the minute, or, or maybe some of the consolidator models, I think their reliance upon third parties through material outsource for platforms, um, that's a big part of their profitability story. Um, and I, I think they always just need to be really clear about why they've entered into some of these partnerships. Have they entered into them because they want to absolutely control the customer journey, the customer experience, the way in which um, you know that, that, that whole end-to-end -end journey manifests in front of a customer? Or have they done it for a few basis points, because if they've done it for a handful of basis points, my, my own belief is that will prove to be um, not sustainable in the longer term, because things like consumer duty will increase the responsibilities on those groups to be a manufacturer in their own right. Even though they're relying on a material outsource, they are the manufacturer, and, and therefore they are going to have to cope with that increased bar that comes from consumer duty. They own it. And I know um, Alicia wrote a fantastic story about this uh, a few weeks ago about the the potential relationship shift between yeah. platforms and advisors in light of consumer duties explicit yeah. focus yeah. for platforms. Yeah, you know, having responsibility for good outcomes. Yeah. Do you see that as being um, as being quite um, you know present in when consumer duty comes in? Yeah, I mean, it's there. It's there right now. I mean, those are the conversations that we're having with firms. I mean, we're obviously kind of between deadlines at the minute, but. We're, we're having lots of conversations with um, advice firms. We're having lots of conversations with DFMs where they're just trying to understand, you know, where the lines are in terms of manufacturing, co-manufacturing, what data we can give them, what we can tell them about, um, you know, the client cohorts that are buying their, their various propositions because everybody's trying to get this right. Um, you know, consumer duty for me is, I think it's one of those things that I almost view a little bit like um, it's definitely an attempt by the regulator to boost trust in the sector, having probably been a bit disappointed by the fact that they've gone through a number of iterations of big scale regulatory interventions that maybe haven't quite cleaned up everything that they wanted to clean up. We've still had instances of sort of bad actors you know, where you, you've had things go wrong, whether that's LPNF and mini bonds or whether that's various boiler room scams. Um, and I think that consumer duty is almost trying to bring in a more principle-based approach to this that forces people to think about the um, the protection of the outcomes instead. So it's, it's a raising of the bar that is done through principles rather than purely through rules, mm. which I, I do really hope will have the effect that we all wanted to have. It's a little bit 
you're into kind of Hippocratic Oath territory. You know, it's a, it's a bit like that sort of do no harm approach. And I think it's right because they have to have more of a catch-all that stops some of the bad behavior that we've seen in the last few years. It's it's niche, it's, it's not mainstream, but when it happens, it damages trust across the whole financial services sector. I do just want to ask another question on something that you touched on earlier, which is, so Parmenian has its own proprietary technology. Yeah. But you're obviously in the platform space and I'm sure that you hear things. Yeah. Technology providers have such a large market share yeah. of platform clients. Yeah. What kind of conversations do you think are happening right now between platforms and their technology providers when platforms are on the regulatory line mm. and there had been some failures in their technology service? What kind of... Do you think there is going to be a shift in dynamic with that? relationship. So I, th I think you're asking a slightly different question there, aren't you, to the one that you were asking about advisors and outsourced platforms. You, yeah. You're really talking more about people that are using, whether it's FNZ Tech or, or yeah. yeah, GBST or, or some of the other tools that are in the background. I mean, I think um, I think Langcat did actually quite an interesting piece on this as well recently, where they talked about about 30% of people are using in-source tech. And about 35, 37% are using FNZ-based tech. And then broadly, about another 30% of the market are using, you know, other other flavors, whether that's GBST and Bravura. Um, so given that you're talking about suddenly, um, let, let's call that 70% of the market, 60, 70% of the market is reliant upon an outsource, a full material outsource of some of the core elements of that proposition. So to your point, you'd have to suddenly be super clear on your, um, you know, your who does what in this scenario. Who's responsible for development? Who's responsible for um, regulatory change? Who's responsible for keeping ahead in terms of the things that are required just to deal with cybersecurity type issues? Um, you know, those none of those things stand still. And, and if you're outsourced, you've kind of lost a little bit of the control. And if you've lost a little bit of the control, I would imagine they're probably hastily trying to rewrite contracts to try and bring some of that control back into the mix for themselves. Um, so I'm, I'm not being detrimental to that model. I understand that it's just not for us. You know, we're very proudly in source tech and sitting on proprietary tech and we're in control of our estate. I think that is an interesting point about trying to re maybe regain some of that control ahead of consumer duty. Mm. Um, and I guess we will see how how that plays out, but I'd definitely like to know a bit more about that. And in terms of the platform market then as a whole over the next sort of decade or so, yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you see that going forwards in terms of potential innovation that's going to happen? Mm. Who do you think is going to be left in the space? Mm. I, d I do think there'll they'll be... There'll obviously be winners and losers. There, there will be um, a few spectacular fails along the way, and I'm, I'm afraid that's just that is just commercial reality that will happen. Um, I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I? I think there is a commercial advantage from being on proprietary tech. I think ultimately, when you're sat looking at your balance sheet, if you've got a material outsource to somebody that you're paying them basis points on, and therefore the bigger you get, the more you're having to pay away. You know that that doesn't feel smart to me. In a pure commercial model, you would try and control your variable costs. Um, so I think we'll see fewer platforms to your to your question, but I think that there is some there's some really interesting disruptive um, tech that's floating around at the moment. 
maybe to your point, Alicia, I think you might see some interest in hookups between CRMs and platforms getting closer to each other. But I'll go back to my very first point. You have to avoid the cul-de-sacs. You know, those have to be um, not limiting unless the advisor has signed up to be restricted. And, um, you know, if, if you're not restricted, you're not going to accept those kind of cul-de-sac propositions. Well, that seems like a great note to end on. Mike, Alicia, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating. You've been listening to The Advice Show with myself, Zach Sharif, fellow reporter Alicia Hagopian, and Mike Morrow of Parmenian. For any questions, please feel free to tweet us at New Model Advisor or email us at lmateam at citywire.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.